Welcome again to another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast with Mike Crimmins. Hey, Zach. Happy monsoon. Happy- <laughs> I guess. Boy, we didn't think we'd be here, or I didn't. I didn't think we'd be a third of the way through July and be doing our first real monsoon podcast and have nothing really to talk about in terms of rain. I know. I was hoping otherwise. I'm not freaking out yet. Let's just put it that way. Otherwise, how are you doing? I'm good. The swamp cooler is living up to its name. It's not doing the cooling part anymore, but it's doing the swamp part really well today. (laughs) Wow. So, okay, we have uh, actually quite a bit to talk about. And even though the monsoon has started slow. And in fact, uh, we can quibble about whether or not it's here in earnest or not, which I'm sure we'll do. I don't think there's a lot of quibbling going to be happening, but I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. I have a little bit to say. Okay. Uh, But despite that, there's quite a bit of uh, interesting things to unpack about the monsoon season. And also, uh, in addition to that, um, we'll cover fire because Arizona in particular has had quite a bit of fire activity uh, over the last month two of the eight largest fires in the history of Arizona have been this, this year, the Bighorn fire right outside of Tucson and the Bush fire uh, near Phoenix. So, and hopefully when the monsoon season or when the monsoons come in earnest, um, we can, for the most part, uh, put a nail in the, in the fire season's coffin, but we don't know when that'll be. Uh, So we'll talk about fire and also, and I'm really excited about this is we sort of opened up, Uh, our monsoon fantasy game to the people who listen uh, to this podcast and the people who tune in to uh, Clemus uh, in general. And believe it or not, we got 36 responses. Uh, So that's awesome. So we're going to go over what uh, people have picked and uh, unpack that game a little bit more and, uh, and try to get people excited about uh, continuing to play and, uh, and for both August and, and September. So, all right. So, um, right. So the fire season. So uh, in general, on average, the number of acres burned in Arizona is around uh, 250,000 and to date, and there's still some time left in the monsoon before the monsoon comes and, and, and extinguishes a lot of what's going on right now. We've experienced about 500,000 acres. So it has been, a pretty active fire season so far with the two main fires that we can talk about being the one in Tucson, the Bighorn fire, which basically ripped through the entirety of the Santa Catalinas up to, I think it's, it's now pretty well contained update today came in at about 78% contained or maybe it's 85%, but it hasn't, that, 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 that percent has, has remained steady over the last week or so. So they've been able to, to gain uh, control over it. You've been paying close attention to this, I assume, because you're, you're kind of a fire guy, Mike. What's, what's, your, what's your thoughts on this, on this fire? This is a big fire. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, what, it was amazing to me to you know, have a fire that literally burns in your backyard. I mean, we watched it every night for the last five weeks because we could see fire, got our binoculars out and you could see the progression of it. But I mean, what's was striking to me was that it started at low elevation 
and it burned up to the top of the mountain and then burned back down to the same starting elevation. That, that to me is, that's, that's quite a fire. And I, you know, and I think that the bushfire did the same thing where it started at low, burned right up over a, a ridge and then burned back down the other side. And I think that that's a real testament to having a lot of that fine fuel loading to work with this year. Cause you wouldn't necessarily have fires of that extent if you didn't have a lot of that lower elevation grasses and herbaceousness. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been an omnipresent here in, in Tucson since I think it started on June 5th. June 5th. Yep. So we're working on more than a month, constantly seeing smoke. And I guess like the two thoughts that I had, because I, for the most part, I've never been cl as close to the, a fire for as long of a period as, as this one. And I think that, you know, when you're out riding or out walking or out just driving, driving around and you, you see it there, you, you, and you see it over a long period of time, you're like, you're thinking about it changes. And, and one of the things, so a couple thoughts that I've had is just a, how amazing it has been that we live in a place where they can try to control it. Right. Yeah. Like I think the amount of money that, and they, and they publish this, um, I think it's up to like 32, $35 million that it's taken to control this fire. And that's the other thought that I had as I'm watching this through time and it's still raging and just these plumes of smoke are, are, are coming up. I'm just, I'm thinking about actually how they're fighting it, you know, and like firefighting and they're not, to me, it's like, they're not really fighting it. They're just sort of trying to guide it. Uh, and obviously yeah. trying to guide it away from humans like S Summerhaven and some of the lower uh, elevation areas where the fire was sort of making its way down these canyons toward toward houses, and you know they're put, they're concentrating their efforts there and trying to trying to do backburns and all this stuff. And it's it's really just like the fire kind of does what the fire wants to do, and like we basically have to wait until Mother Nature kicks in for it to be fully quelled. You guys can correct me, but I don't think they lost a single structure. Did they in this fire? So there's, there's been no, and there's been a, a handful of injuries, kind of occupational injuries, I think, of some of the firefighters. Seven injuries, heat injuries. Heat injuries, which kind of makes sense for this time of year. For a 120,000 acre fire burning next to an urban area, and then through actual summer homes, that's pretty good. I think they got some lucky breaks, but the fire management of the creation of lines and the use of air tankers, the DC-10s dropping slurry, just the constant helicopter work. I don't know if you guys were watching like the flight tracking or you could even see, we could see the helicopters from our house, but they'd put those pumpkins out with full of water and they'd put the dip buckets in and they were doing that for weeks, I think. And so they got it to go around Summerhaven and we watched the, the video of it burning, the fire burned through the fire department up on the the ridge with the webcam going. <laughs> yeah, that was a crazy webcam. So you're you're watching the webcam and you're seeing actual live fire and it's like yeah. right next to the, the camera and you're like, oh, this is just like a matter of hours before the cam goes blank. And it didn't. Yeah. No, it didn't. I mean, it like they clearly were firewise with the fire station. Good for them. <laughs> the fire went through and then um, there's like a Boy Scout camp and there's Willow Canyon's got summer houses. So that area they had to move the fire on and do structure protection 
And that was impressive. The fire made a run down towards the, the houses near Reddington, down on the San Pedro. They had a fire line there. Um, Oracle, the same thing, had a fire line there where it could have run downhill into Oracle. So it's been pretty impressive. They've had to clearly work hard at kind of moving it around. Um, and, you know, like I think you started off with too, I, I'm, it's July 10th and I'm surprised I still see smoke because we had, we had showers pop up and thunderstorms pop up on July 3rd, I think it was, the 2nd yep. or the 3rd through Tucson. The humidity went, went way back up, but the fire has kind of rebounded. Um, we've had the temperatures come way back up. And so I think the relative humidities have dropped again, even with the, the new humidity we were working with right now kind of at the beginning of the monsoon here. So in the last month, did we have more or less, or was it kind of a typical windy period? To me, it seemed like we had fewer sort of red flag warnings. Do you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know on the lookup side of it. I, I think that June was probably pretty normal. Yeah. As far as it wasn't particularly windy. I can remember some very, very windy Junes. 2011 really stands out. That was that big, big fire year. June is a transition month away from the mid-latitude westerlies, which would create the wind. And we had some pressure from some passing storms to the north, but they've largely subsided. And so we didn't end up having that as much. Right when we, we recorded the podcast that day in mid-June, big wind event and um, red flag warnings that day. And it made a huge run around the north side of the mountain. Do you think the background uh, climate and weather conditions uh, sort of favored a, a, a big fire or, or not? Not like, I'm not talking like drought. I'm talking about like just the sort of ambient conditions as the fire is going. Like, could this have been, did we get lucky that it was only this, this, um, this, this level? And, and that's hard to say because it's the biggest fire on Mount Lemmon in recorded history. We're going to have to have this discussion again later after the, the burn severity mapping is done to really be able to characterize whether or not this was a, largely a beneficial fire or not. The, the lower elevation fires are probably never beneficial if they're burning through areas that don't normally burn. You know, if they're burning through patches of invasives or if they're burning through succulents like cacti that are not fire adapted, that's, that's never a good thing. But some of those canyons probably needed fire. And if they did get some good fire in there, that could have opened up some areas for new vegetation. That's good. Some areas that were trying to recover from the Aspen fire that burned hot again, it's probably not good. But then the slow, low, the slow burning fires in the understory of the Ponderosa Pine were probably good. So it's probably this giant mixed bag. It's this weird thing too, because it, it happened in a year. We've had two winters where precip was good during the winter time so that may have helped with the bigger live fuel like the trees may have been in a better spot as far as withstanding fire they weren't super drought stressed but again there's this kind of ongoing creeping drought stress with increasing temperatures and you know climate change that's stressing trees overall every year now even with with the good winters so you know it's just, just kind of a mixed bag i think people who study fire and do fire ecology we need to have fire move through these areas. So maybe there is, maybe again, it's going to be, what's the net, is it going to be a net positive, net negative? And I don't think we'll know yet until we do that, a lot of that mapping. Well, just to put this in a little bit of context, the other 
main fire that we, we think about on uh, the, in the Santa Catalinas on the Mount Lemmon area was the Aspen fire. And that was June 17th. It started in 2003. So you have to go back 17 years. It actually ripped through. Unfortunately, it burned 340 buildings, it says here on, on the Wikipedia page. And it burned. And again, this puts the current size of the Bighorn Fire in context. The Aspen Fire burned close to 85,000 acres. So uh, big fire there. But uh, this one is uh, much larger, but fortunately not as consequential in terms of human damage. And the cost for that, uh, although, you know, it's the expenses increased here. So these aren't normalized figures, but um, was somewhere in the vicinity of 20, 20 to $25 million. And uh, right now, like I said before, I think I said 32 million as of today, June 10th, 37 million for the Bighorn Fire. Mm-hmm. So quite a lot of resources. But again, I'm, I mean, I'm just so thankful that, you know, we live in a in a, in, a, in a country that can actually dedicate these kinds of resources to fighting it. Because if not, there would have been very, a, a lot of homes that would have, would have gone up in flames for sure. I think that's right. And just seeing, seeing those DC-10s, you know, that we've all flown on DC-10s just on commercial airliners, but to watch them drop behind the mountain ridges and paint those giant pink stripes on the mountain is something I have never seen before. That was really interesting too, because I saw a couple where there was like a spotter plane flying and the spotter plane was like in front of the DC 10. Yes. And then, it would, then it would like let out some smoke or some signal that to- told the DC 10 pilot to drop its load. It, and so it's not just one plane. It's, it's, it's multiple. I watched a, a video of one of the firefighters up on the Catalina's, he showed that he showed the the spotter plane go overhead, and I, I think they dropped water, is like to mark it, and then the DC-10 was like not very far behind them, and and wherever that spotter plane painted it, that slurry came down, and I think we had three DC-10s working it. There was so much air traffic over the mountain. There was way more air traffic over the mountain than there was over the Tucson airport. <laughs> um, you know, at the height of it. I mean, there were so many spotter aircraft and helicopters and then these crazy commercial aircraft are coming in converted to to slurry drops it was it was something else and it's just so weird to go out you know you go walking around you see all these like graffiti stripes of pink on the mountain still there yeah i know you we get a good it's like looking at red rocks you're like oh wait those those are not right. <laughs> exactly um and the other thing just just quickly before we we, we move on it's 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 all mitigation until until the monsoon comes. Totally. You know, I can go out in our backyard right now and still see smoke on the mountains. And, and I, I was convinced, I think that's because I'm such a monsoon optimist, even though my monsoon fantasy bets don't look like it, was that there's just no way we're going to still have smoke rising on July 10th. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so what about the bushfire? I haven't spent as much time thinking about the bushfire, but I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, is out before or fully contained before the monsoon comes. Although I'm sure like once the rains do come, it'll put a final um, end to it. But uh, w- any, anything worth, worth that, that you've uh, paid attention to that's worth talking about with the bushfire? It's, it's burned close to 200,000 acres, um, like we said uh, before. And it's the, I think it's the fourth or fifth largest fire now in the history of 
of Arizona. I have, I mean, let me just call up this list here. So the Wallow Fire was number one at 2011, close to 500,000, over 500,000 acres. Rodeo Chetuskai, 2002, uh, 470,000 acres. Cave Creek Complex, 2005, 240,000 acres. Horseshoe Fire in 2011. Oh boy, 2011, I forgot about that. Um, that was 220,000. And then the Bush Fire at a little under 200,000. Yeah, so, right. I, you know, it, it started, you told me this too. It was a vehicle fire that started it, right? That's a yeah, human cause. Uh-huh. Human cause fire. And it was, there was it's some- Still picture. under investigation, they say, but it's believed to be human caused. Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. That's what I remember hearing too. Um, started low elevation and heavy, fine fuels. And, you know, it was carried east in the, the strong upslope, west winds and you know burned right up over wasn't it the manzanitas wasn't the mazatzal mountains and uh they used one of the state highways as a fire break and it it stopped right there at the at the they used that as a fire line the the entire um eastern fire perimeter is the uh what is it state route it's 188 well i guess we should also say as i'm looking at this list the Magnum fire, Mangum fire this year comes in at the 11th largest in the history of Arizona, recorded fire history, um, which doesn't go back all that long, but it's at, uh, it's still ongoing. Uh, I don't know what it's contained at. Uh, it's on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, close to 60,000 acres. So yeah, quite, a, quite an active fire. They all seem to have, those three seem to have started uh, around the similar time. It was the too soon at that point. A little bit of rain, some obviously some lightning caused the Bighorn Fire. Um, it's unknown about the Mangum, and obviously the we, what we just said the, the bushfire was caused by human. Do you know when the bushfire started? June sixteenth. So it started later. New Mexico. We should just mention New Mexico. New Mexico has total fires caused both human and lightning, just fifty five thousand acres, as of a few days ago. So quite a different picture. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, because the drought monitor map, if you're using that as, as a guide for where the fires would be, they don't, they don't quite line up. We're in basic kind of drought-free to abnormally dry in much of Arizona and much of northern New Mexico, especially with that kind of winter drought situation. Um, not, not seeing the fires yet um, to the magnitude that we are. Well, it just goes to show you that, you know, the background climate state obviously plays a role, but isn't, isn't the only role to play. And, and there could be complicated relationships. I mean, it's that, 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 I don't know what drought timescale you're looking at, but these things can, can have signals that go back years. Right. So it's not just the immediate, you know, last six months or last nine months that, 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 that matter. It could be uh, multiple years. Totally. And yeah, and I think fire is not a kind of single variable doesn't have a single variable predictor. Hopefully the peak of the fire season for Arizona is usually late June, June and into July. And as we've talked about before, sort of tamps down when the monsoon comes in. So Mike, okay. So we have to unpack the monsoon. A couple of things we've got to unpack. A, there was an incursion of moisture right around sort of the first of July, second of July um, that kind of gave us a whiff of the monsoon, but it was an interesting sort of incursion. It didn't produce a whole bunch, though there were places, particularly to uh, southeast of 
of, uh, of Tucson, for example, that, you know, there were some isolated areas with, 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 with rains. And if you were in those places, you're like, all right, the monsoon's here. Um, but for the most part uh, of Arizona and New Mexico, that, that area, we just got a little bit of, you know, our, our swamp coolers didn't work quite as well. And, and there wasn't enough moisture to get, get the uh, monsoons fired up in earnest. So, and then, you know, since then it's been kind of bleak. You know, we had a dip in the, 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 the moisture. So let's, maybe let's, let, let's talk about um, that first event and, and go from there. Why didn't it generate uh, more persistent and widespread rain? That's <laughs> a good question. I've been, been kind of just trying to piece it together. I think I might even just step back one step and talk about the expectations for the progression that we see in the early monsoon season to now. And we, again, cleanly, climatologically, long-term averages, uh, you, know, you know, you see this in the literature and, and you you look at this when you start to analyze the statistics of like the upper level fields and upper level windfall patterns is a progression of the mid-level anticyclone or mid-level subtropical ridge, you know, 500 millibars, uh, 20,000 feet or so, basically marching north from Mexico up into the southwest and then the proverbial four corners high is what that turns into. So that clean progression leads to a subtle change in the wind direction at the mid-levels of the atmosphere, which also then connects to a transition in the air mass, where we, where we go from that dry May-June air mass that's hot and dry to a subtropical air mass that's on the south side of that ridge. So we're, we're then into the subtropics. That's the nice clean climate world that I like to live in where everything follows normal distributions and everything follows climatology and stuff like that. Well, daily weather maps don't often look like that and they look like a mess. Well, what you're saying is you became a climatologist because it's easier to get your mind around. Control and order and simplicity. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't, yeah. I, so I studied meteorology and I was like, this isn't going to work. So just go, <laughs> go down the road. I gravitated toward climatolo- climate science as well. <laughs> right. And you see everything I try to do is, it's very frequent. This, whatever happens the most is what I want to run. So <laughs> this, the progression of the subtropical ridge north in the moisture has not been very, very clean and very, um, Mexico has really struggled um, in June with the progression of the precipitation they normally see. Uh, up the, the mountain range in Mexico. And you can look at the, the position of that 500 millibar anticyclone subtropical ridge and the best kind of position of it and that best sort of movement of rainfall up into Southern Arizona in particular was that July kind of second, third period where the, the ridge did move into, into position there was a flare-up of moisture, and the moisture reached up into Arizona at that point. Was it pushed in the, in the position? If I remember, there was an easterly wave or a low-pressure system that off like Baja that helped drive it uh, north. I, I believe either Mike Luthold or Bob Maddox, two of the guys that are really go-to sources of monsoon information here in the southwest, 
was calling it sort of a, an unusual, if you will, uh, monsoon setup. It wasn't like the canonical position. I don't know if you, re- if you remember, remember that at all. Yeah, it, it, that, that's correct. It was, I'm, I'm looking back at Mike Lufeld's blog right now, which is, these are climatological data sets too, in their own right. It's like, I, I'll go back to these blogs years later to go and try to diagnose an event and looking at Bob's. Um, yeah, Mike is saying here, this isn't a traditional monsoon pattern because we were, the subtropical ridge at that point had not kind of moved into position. It had gotten better over subsequent days, but then we lost the moisture source on the other side of it there. So, so an increase in precipitable water, kind of that measure of the integrated water in the atmosphere and millimeters depth through the whole column of the atmosphere really popped up because of that guided. We had that, this pattern of some smaller scale features that were kind of gearing up and guiding the moisture north, which is not unlike what we had in late May and then again in early June. So not really monsoonal in the sense of this big air mass transition because everything is in the right spot, but more of we're kind of feeding moisture up into it, kind of forcing it, I think is what you were, you were saying there earlier. Right. It was very similar to that too soon pattern that. Uh, yeah, right. Right. So, like June 1st uh, moisture in the region, although it didn't generate much pre- precipitation. Okay. So in that early part of July, we were in a southwesterly flow. That southwesterly flow was reaching into the subtropics, but that's more of a transition pattern. That would be something that you would see at the very beginning of the monsoon season. Like we've seen, and we've seen that as early as June, like way back to even like, remember tropical storm Bud that kicked us off right on the 15th a couple of years ago. That's that kind of kind of forcing the moisture into the region, getting widespread stuff kicked off. And then once that's, that thing went away, everything retracted. That's basically it, because you know you're and you're we're on the very northern boundary. And we're not actually into the fundamental air mass transition that you're going to see as a subtropical ridge pushes to the north. So we're just like today and yesterday. I don't know if you guys were watching all the, but the last couple of days, the storms have been right at the border and they've just been kind of, they've been exhaling all of this moisture to the north. And one of them got close enough last night where the anvil went over Tucson and oh my God, thank God it broke the sun at that point because it was miserable. But we had this big slug of moisture. The dew points at my house were up in the low 60s. And that was like the first kind of day where it started to feel like, okay, this is where you're starting to get the, like it's getting close enough now that we're going to get settled into the pattern. Well, I think it's important to like sort of try to visualize that, what the, 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 the position of the high does. And if, if, if people can think of it, like it kind of acts as a barrier. If the center of that high is sort of over, let's say Tucson, for example, the moisture can't come up beyond, it sort of it acts as a block. And so you need, the, you need that whole high to move north, which then allows the moisture to move up into the area. And so, it, so that, that, that high pressure system and its position is really consequential because it basically allow, it's a, it's a gauge on, 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 on how far the moisture can move northward, more or less it's not a physical barrier. It's more of a, like a, it's an indicator of, you know, cause it's the moisture really isn't at 500 millibars, you know? So it's, so it's not the, it's not really the flow around it, but it's, it kind of signals broader synoptic patterns where, 
you know, if, if you're on the, if you're on the north side and you're in, if your upper level winds are in the westerlies, that, that really does kind of translate down in the rest of the atmosphere that you're probably stacked up and still dragging in moisture or, or the, your air mass is still going to be more characterized out of kind of that westerly flow, which is dry, right? And so that's, in this, this whole, as that ridge moves north, that north side of the ridge, as you go to the northwest, that's, that's the hot, dry summer desert that you're going to see like in the Mojave. It's the California kind of desert. And as you get kind of down and you're underneath the ridge, which is where we're at today, it's weak flow, it's stagnant. And then as you go south of that, there, then you're into deeper easterly flow, which is really subtropical. And there's all sorts of like topography interacting. There's, you know, there's the channeling of moisture through the pressure differential up the Gulf of California, which then actually gets pulled up an upslope flow underneath the ridge, you know, in a good Gulf surge event. And then there's hopefully low level moisture flow up the Gulf of Mexico that's getting into New Mexico, which has been largely, it hasn't been there. It's been quite dry. And then it's the, the march of the, the moisture up the mountains of Mexico that literally kind of kicks the moisture down the road and it gets it, gets it a day closer every day as new thunderstorms. And so we're, we're right there. It's, and I wish we would have been where we are today two weeks ago. If we would have gotten it kicked off a little bit earlier, that might have given us more chance <laughs> for more interesting monsoon season. We're getting late now. I guess then, you know, one of the questions is, has there been anything pushing down on that, on that ridge? I mean, what, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interplay with what's going on to its south and what's going on to its north. And, you know, if the, if the question is, for the monsoon to, 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 kick off, to get kicked off, you, you really do need the high to, to be in a favorable position to get that, the, the moisture uh, incursion. And then later on in, in August, say, or in late uh, July, after the monsoon is sort of ramped up and there's moisture around, other things are able to come into play. And so you don't, the position of the high isn't as consequential. But back to the question, why has the, 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 the ridge uh, just not moved as, as far north? Yeah, it, um, there, it's been busy. I mean, it, the mid-latitudes are still are still quite busy and we were looking at temperature across the west there and you were you're commenting on how nice portland is right now well there, there's still there's been kind of late season troughs and and rainy weather still moving into the pacific northwest and so that that whole translation of the weather pattern the storm systems coming in in the mid-latitudes if they're able to press down the subtropical ridge is shunted south and then we're back in the westerlies and we're in that drier air mass. And so we've, we've seen that kind of come and go and we've had some really good solid dry days in between some humid days in, in June. I'm like a living hygrometer with having a swamp cooler. Like you can, you literally get tuned up to know what the outdoor dew point is by living with a swamp cooler. It is, it is quite fantastic except for today. Like I know what the dew point is out today and it's way above 55 right now because of that. But there were days when it would get down to like 20 and the cooler was w working great, house is cool. And the only way in your head you're like, okay, the reason it's a 20 degree day dew point out here is because there's some weather system that is like pushed hard on the monsoon ridge and pushed all the moisture back to the south. I'm not sure in the entirety of human history, the words I'm a human, I'm a living human hydrometer have ever been said together. Hygrometer, man, hygrometer. <laughs> <laughs> 
high ground roots used to be made out of human hair. And so my beard is like, look at this. <laughs> oh my God. All right. No, 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 no. We're not going back there. But then, you know, the question then becomes, okay, so, so what's driving the busyness of, you know, the subtropical jet? Uh, well, it's, it's, so it's mid-latitude. Oh, the mid-latitude jet, sorry, I said that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've been, I, keep, I read the, the Climate Prediction Center prognostic discussions, and, you know, at this time of year, you're looking for something upstream forcing. The thing is, is that the, all the, the typical things that influence the mid-latitude jet at this time of year, the mid-latitude jet is shrinking towards the poles. I think it was, we've talked about as the whole Northern hemisphere heats up. And so the mid-latitude jet's gonna be responding to the temperature gradient in the Northern hemisphere. Well, that decreases and goes North. So that, that's where you should start to see these subtropical ridges, the land surface heating, promoting the growth and the extent of the, the subtropical ridge, the mid-level anticyclone usually takes over. So it's, it's just whatever upstream weather is wiggling around. And we've seen a lot of that. And we saw that last summer, but this summer is different. And I don't think it's going to be long lived. I think it's- so, Before we go there though, that raises a couple questions. You, you brought okay. up a lot, of, a lot of interesting things. So what would be a favorable sort of monsoon outlook then is if the mid-latitude jet is, is not circuitous or it's not uh, um, wiggly the technical term wiggly, right? It's, 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 it's more uh, linear, if you will, and, and farther north. It's retracted further north. Yep. What would create that scenario? The summertime, it gets, it gets a little weird. I mean, and I, I'm not super well-versed in, in the mid-latitude jet dynamics in the, in the summertime. The super simple would be, okay, so, so some of, there's been a lot of discussion about um, the Arctic sea ice extent, that's usually at the tail ends of the season. I think when you see the, the biggest response, the Madden-Julian oscillation doesn't typically have a real strong mid-latitude expression in the summertime, much more in the wintertime, um, but it can, it can influence the, the East Asian monsoon. And the East Asian monsoon can influence the mid-latitude jet, which can then subsequently influence the downstream wave pattern. Right. And I haven't, I haven't really been following that. I mean, it's like, just what, a what, web. you know, it's just like, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. You, you, you ding something and obviously it has uh, impacts on these other nodes that you're talking about, but then the, then they ding other things. And it's like all this, this web that's really hard to unpack. And I think part of what I'm, I'm hearing you say is this, this is why it is like really difficult to, uh, sort of forecast an onset of the monsoon. Yeah, and so, I mean, the Climate Prediction Center was really open and honest about how challenging the onset for this season was going to be. And they, they knew that in late May. And a lot of that comes back to the work of, you know, one of our colleagues, Chris Castro, who's looked at the North American monsoon system in relation to ENSO, you know, either El Nino or La Nina. And there's some weak correlations between El Nino you know, can it, and it's seen El Nino conditions, which probably were at play a year ago for our 2019 season, or a La Nina, which can signal a much easier time for the subtropical ridge to kind of push north and, and get us kind of early season access to the moisture. So this year, we're neutral transitioning to La Nina, very weak signal. Weather is winning out right now in, in our particular system. And so you'll see the 
the outlooks, so the, the seasonal outlooks don't have anything to really grab onto, which is why they're equal chances. The, eight, the six to 10 and eight to 14 day forecasts are kind of at the outer envelope and they're gonna be probabilistic. Well, they've been very consistent on having a late start for weeks now. And so they, they've been correct. And that's been largely the dynamical models seeing that the subtropical ridge was struggling. And, and you see it in the weather, like even if you look at the weather map for the last couple of days, there's, it's been wet along the northern tier of the, of the country and the subtropical ridge is flat right now. And it's now just building north again um, because it, it will build north because it's getting so freaking hot across the country and the mid-latitude jet will retreat. So that, that kind of heat dome does take over eventually. And it's just kind of then where, where its position is and if that monsoon moisture can kind of get up in here. So it's, it is, we're just in a late start and it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to probably take off in the next couple of weeks. And my final thing, I'm, it's kind of a long rant. I just looked at the week three, four forecast, which is issued by Climate Prediction Center. And there's a little Easter egg in the discussion that just like, I got, I got like butterflies in my stomach because it said that the ECMWF, the European Center uh, model, has wet conditions for the Southwest, but it was the outlier. <laughs> so, but that's like, that's like the gold standard weather model. It is suggesting that the monsoon onset is gonna happen next couple of weeks but it wasn't the main model. The rest of the models still look bleak. It's not much of a prediction. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, yeah, in the next couple, so we're, t we're, we're talking like within, before July, July 14th, which I think there isn't, I think that's a good bet, just, just based on, you know, history here. Like most of the monsoons uh, begin, even the late ones begin before then. But I want to go back to another important thing that you said, which is this year is not like last year. And so last year was kind of dismal, uh, particularly here in, 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 in Tucson. The first rain at the airport didn't happen. And it wasn't that much. It was a quarter of an inch. It didn't happen until July 13th. You said that this monsoon season isn't like la last monsoon season. So let's unpack that a little bit. Like what, what, what is different about this season than last season? Well, not, not a lot so far. <laughs> it's just, they're, they're very similar. I, I guess that the, I think that in hindsight, and I wasn't, I really wasn't hanging my hat on the, the kind of lingering El Nino effect that I do think some, some people really picked up on. I think Climate Prediction Center probably, probably hung their head on that a little bit more. Um, or at least the, the, there was not a good, there was a wave pattern that was putting pressure on the subtropical ridge position that really did persist. And so what we ended up having was um, through July and up through a lot of the summer was that the subtropical ridge was kind of, when it did build north, it built north over it built to the northeast and the trough was hanging out across california and so what you saw was the moisture boundary in the, the kind of that monsoon moisture transition we were talking about the air mass transition it was draped across the state and so flagstaff effectively was in the dry kind of nevada air mass almost all summer right which is how you get to have your record driest you know you end up having the monsoon that you'd expect to see in like 
in Nevada, which is non-existent, was kind of translated down to Flagstaff. Tucson was in a, we were still kind of in the soup. It just wasn't great. And then all of that kind of Great Plains moisture, they did quite well off to the tough to these. So we're, it's not super different right now. The ridge is building overhead. The models really indicate that we're going to have a big, broad subtropical ridge. So it's, it's going to look different. The key will be, and if the models just aren't dealing well with the precipitation mechanisms, which I don't, I don't think they, they do do real well with. The, they do good with the big broad scale stuff, but all the interesting stuff with the monsoon is all that kind of like terrain, the topography in the mountains driving the convection. They can't see the mountains and, and where the moisture sources are and triggering of a gulf surge that then causes moisture recycle. To me, that looks different over the next couple of weeks than we would have saw this same time last year. Right. And if I recall last year, what was particularly frustrating about it was that there was moisture around. It's just the, the, the atmospheric dynamics, the, the thermodynamics, if you will, um, wasn't set up to actually squeeze the moisture of its, of its uh, a squeeze, squeeze the atmosphere of its moisture. So it wasn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, it wasn't so much that we were lacking um, precipital water. It's just that we were lacking the mechanisms to make it rain. But again, it, the gradient of precipitable water was dark across the state. And so, mm. oh, south, yeah, okay. yeah, you know, so, so like south, parts of Southeast, far Southeast Arizona did quite well because they were, they were in the soup and the dynamics were good, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything to squeeze out when you got up North of, you know, Phoenix. Like Flagstaff, right. Yeah. And you get to like kind of the far Northwest corner. It just, it just didn't happen. And, and, and the Tucson the, was right on that, right, sort of right in the margins then of when there, where there was moisture available. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, I think that that's, that's part of that subtropical ridge position. And, and having deep easterly flow across the entire southwest in Arizona, that air mass is lifted north. And so then you can start to see the, you know, big outbreaks of thunderstorms that are across the whole Mogollon Rim here in Arizona that can then translate downhill. And you can even get the rainers out way into the lower Colorado River Valley as well. But we didn't, I don't remember seeing many, if any of those kind of events last year. But again, I'm like, I have this kind of like fuzzy picture of the whole season and overall it wasn't, wasn't great. And it was terrible. It was like record bad for some spots of the state. So this morning in, in preparation, I was looking for like, okay, what are, what are key numbers for the monsoon? Um, what are, what are things that describe the monsoon that, 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 that would be useful to talk about? And I came up with a couple. I wanted to share one with you. So I looked back in just in the last 10 years and I wanted to, I asked the question, well, how many years in the last decade has the monsoon started later than the current day? So later than July 10th, three. Wow. Yep. So three, so this is not all that uncommon. Um, so, so the three years are, we already talked about 2019 first precip in 2019 didn't happen uh, at the airport in Tucson. So th this is my frame of reference here, uh, until, uh, July 13th, 2017 and then 2010. So then the next question became, well, if we've started late and um, let's say we've started at, at the very least a week late than we otherwise would, 
does that, what does that mean for, um, for the monsoon season as a whole when we look back on it, right? 2019 uh, was uh, not very good as a whole. I'm looking at your plots, Mike, and it was the 49th, <laughs> ranked 40, 49th wettest out of 72. So what would that be in terms of driest? Uh, 20, 23rd driest. So anyway, to, put, to, to give you numbers, we're like an inch below what uh, average in Tucson. Uh, and that was for last year. So 2017, however, was a pretty good year. And I've talked about this uh, pretty good monsoon season. And I, I, I talk about this quite a bit as that late July period being there was like a three week stretch in 2017 where it was just unbelievable. And 2017 ended up being close to two and a half inches above average. In fact, it was the ninth wettest on, on record out of, out of 70 years in, in this. So, and then 2010, it was about a half an inch below average and, and each of them have different patterns. But I guess the point that I want to make here is that, yeah, we started a little late. We've, we've lost a week, you know, on average, that would mean about two, two days of, uh, of rainfall it makes us harder to make that up, but we're certainly not locked into a bad monsoon season. No, I, this is such a good kind of line of uh, discussion that you brought up, making that distinction that the July, August, September total monsoon season precip since July is part of that. <laughs> if you end up with below average precip for the month, the whole season is it's very difficult to make up the deficit of one month in a three month total, but it can happen. Right. And so I think even to make the point too of like, we're 10 days into July, does it mean we're doomed? Actually, no. And one reason is, is that if you look at the precipitation patterns, more often than not, much of that precipitation comes after July 15th anyways, for much of, much of the Southwest. So we got kind of those two things kind of going for us right now. I think it's just good to say it's, we're getting a little panicked. I'm certainly getting a little panicked with not seeing, you know, the rain that we'd expect to see flourishing across Arizona and New Mexico. New Mexico has really struggled too uh, so far, but it can turn around very, very quickly. And I think your 2017, I think is a really good one to unpack a little bit more too. Unpack it, baby. <laughs> well, we come back to your, your 2017, man. You should get that tattooed. I just didn't see it across your back is like, the cumulative preset plot for 2017. And then maybe we could like shade in a couple of your awesome photos you took from there. Like I just, I can see the tattoo artist right now working on this, this kind of <laughs> blend in. And actually my face is one of those kind of like, kind of profile pics would, I this is, this look really good. The point being the 2017 <laughs> is that the seasonal total Almost all the seasonal total for July to September happened in two weeks in July for Tucson. I know, and, and that's actually worth pausing on a little bit. I, it started late then, and then it just went gangbusters for a little over two weeks, as Mike said. And we basically got nearly seven inches of rain. The average for Tucson is close to six inches. So we've, we, in, in a three-week period, a little under three-week period, we got seven inches of rain. And then, you know... At the end of July, there was basically just one more meaningful event at the airport. And, uh, you know, I, I, there, there could have been isolated areas 
elsewhere that, that, that filled in different dates for other areas, but at the airport, just one other meaningful event, you know, close to slightly over an inch. So a substantial amount of rain then, but, and you know what, I, I remember looking, I, I look back on that monsoon and, you know, those, uh, those three weeks uh, made all oh. of the other weeks that the, the seven other weeks that were dry uh, worth it. So I, it's so true. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this. It, it rained almost every day for a, a period of, like there were, so th this is really unusual for monsoon season. So the whole, you know, the monsoon season is here in Southern Arizona, especially, is the thunderstorm events are occurring underneath the high pressure system, which is not super ideal. You know, it's fighting a lot of unfavorable thermodynamics. You got to overcome it with a lot of moisture. So typically when you, have a big day, it's usually a down day the next day. So you're kind of doing this like reset. I don't remember what happened in 2017, but I'm looking at like there was a run of five days in a row where the airport recorded either a quarter or a half inch in the middle of the month. Like that's, that's hard to do. That's nuts. And so it, there must have been some other like tropical circulations or really good brisk easterly flow that would help reset the atmosphere good access to moisture. I mean, like, it seems kind of, these were special conditions that you wouldn't normally see. And, and again, it's like the season is kind of an interesting one to look at more. Um, I'll kind of have to dig into it. But what happened after August 15th that it was done? It literally, as far as rainfall, and if you look at the temperatures too, the temperatures climbed back up there through the rest of August and through beginning of September. It looked, it looked unpleasant, even after that really good July. We were all basking though at that point. Been in a glow for years now, 2017. <laughs> I just it's like I, your it's like your high your senior year in high school, man. It's like <laughs> you want to just live it over and over again. That was my junior year. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I had a great junior year. <laughs> <laughs> it is true to say that the further you go into July, and the further that there is less rain, the harder it is to make that up. Um, and so when you look at the, the, the season in aggregate, you know, you know, let's say we don't get rain until July 24th. If I'm betting on that point for above or below average rain uh, for, for, for wherever, I'm betting a lot of money on below. Yeah. It's not to say it can't happen uh, the other way, um, but it's just you're, you're, you're tipping the scales. Um, the other point I think is also to think about this in terms of that July is not a predictor for August or September. There are different mechanisms, nuances of the monsoon, and we, by month, if you will, or by period, however you want to break, break it up, as you go, as, you, as the monsoon evolves, things change a little bit. And we alluded to this um, before, um, you know, uh, 10 or 20 minutes ago, by, by talking about the position of the ridge. Well, the position of the ridge is really consequential uh, in the beginning of the monsoon to get that monsoon started, but then becomes less important, uh, if you will, later on in the monsoons. And one of those reasons is because moisture recycling is so important and uh, just for, 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 for creating that uh, moisture that can then become rain. And, you know, some studies, you know, looked at the different sources from the Gulf of California, Gulf of Mexico, to the, to the land surface recycling. And, 
and have quantified it as, as, as the second most important source next to that which is coming from the Gulf of California, somewhere in the vicinity of like 40%. So as we get rain, as we're raining on the landscape to our south and locally, we're able to then have that as, a, as its own source and, and that position of the, of the ridge becomes less important as, as, as the mechanism for, for bringing moisture into the region. So to summarize, you know, the, the, the flavors of, uh, of the monsoon, they change in season and the mechanisms change. Totally agree. And I think that the subtropical ridge, it has sharper features at the beginning of the season because of the broader circulation of the northern hemisphere with the temperature gradients. Those, those weaken. And so by late July and into August, really good monsoon seasons, you'll often just see a big sprawling, weak, stagnant high pressure system. Sometimes the subtropical ridge has like all these little high pressure systems and it's just like this big swampy, soupy air mass that we're dealing with across the Southwest. And then you're looking at smaller features in the flow, little, little easterly waves, inverted troughs, old remnant cyclonic circulations that become the focusing features um, for the bigger events at the end of the season. So like, like you said, kind of, you know, a three period game, a three act play. We're in the opening act right now where we're just trying to get the air mass moved in here. And we're going to do it through a combination of the local recycling of the moisture as it's kind of marching up the Sierra and Mexico, getting a good Gulf surge, activated kind of crashing those two moisture sources together and really wetting the soil here will will get us going and then you start to play with a lot of that moisture in august and then by late august into september the mid-latitudes are starting to come back south and we're now going to fight the erosion of that moisture source because we're going to be back into the westerlies but it's also the season where you can start to see all that moisture still at play and then having a cooler air masses descend from the north give us steeper lapse rates and can help recurve that moisture from the east pacific back into the region too so it gives you a whole, a whole other like those big widespread rain events are much more common later in the season than they are earlier in the season looking at this point mike of of regional what really widespread regional events. Uh, I just want to bring up the paper that I recently read. It's not new. It's 2013 by John Favors and uh, James Favors and John Abatsoglu. It's called Regional Surges in Monsoon Moisture in the Southwestern United States. And so they were characterizing these events, uh, these widespread events that, that, that created uh, on average a fair amount of, uh, of rainfall over spatially averaged over, over Arizona. Uh, and they were looking at, well, what, what's the sort of dynamics that, you know, we're not talking about these spotty convective cells, one here and one there. We're talking about the sort of patterns that set up that really drive uh, rainfall across a, wa- a, a large swath of, uh, of Arizona. And they noted an interesting pattern. First of all, uh, I, I should say that uh, they identified using a specific criteria that these regional events are only about two times per year. So not many of them, but they can generate up to like, boy, they can generate up to like half of the, the rainfall in any given season. So those two events can account for a large fraction of the total monsoon rainfall. So they're, they're really important setups. And what they found is that the, 
the, the patterns that produce these were this easterly wave uh, wafting from the east to the west, wafting across uh, Mexico, followed by a uh, trough off the coast of California to the west. And that sort of synoptic pattern, which doesn't have that canonical four corners high, and this ties back into what we were talking about a minute ago, um, that the, the, the position of the four corners high uh, was sort of retracted to the east. And the easterly wave followed by that trough uh, off the coast of California created this conduit for just this rush of moisture up, up far into you know, uh, northern Arizona and, and, and whatnot. And that these happened, bit like what you were just saying, um, not so much in, in July, but they were patterns that were more favorable uh, later on in the monsoon season. So I thought, yeah. that, was, I thought that was really interesting, just that um, you just get these different sort of features, easterly waves followed by this, this trough off the, the coast of California that can create these, these settings that are really favorable for widespread uh, rainfall. That would align well with that, the transition pattern in the, the kind of the old classic Bob Maddox severe weather event typings for the for the southwest for the monsoon season it has all the ingredients that you'd want which would be moisture and possibly some upper level dynamics and good steep lapse rates those three things can come and go and sometimes they can cross each other where the moisture is good but you don't have you don't have any dynamics often in the middle of the monsoon season because you're underneath a giant sprawling ridge and you're waiting for s small upper level features. You've got so, and that we're actually, today the moisture is really getting to climatological levels, well, it's trying to anyways, but the mid-levels are very warm because the mid-level anticyclone is right overhead. And so that's gonna be the kind of the maximum of those mid-level warms. So you don't have this, the steepness. If you could inject another half inch of moisture underneath this ridge, you could spark thunderstorms on the mountains that might even turn into valley rain. And if you had the opposite where you had marginal moisture, but it was, you had some cool air coming in overhead with a little inverted trough or even a, a tr like a mid-latitude trough, you could spark good thunderstorms from that. But it's like getting those things to work together is often hard that pattern that you described is kind of like the trifecta of having those three things with dynamics and lapse rates and moisture all coming together. And they're transitional too. You don't necessarily, they're really, it'd be unusual, I think, to see that in mid-season because of its reliance on having that mid-latitude support. So you just brought up a fairly complicated concept that, uh, I think we should try to explain because it's, it's really important. And it goes back to the sort of thermodynamics in, in, the, in the atmosphere and, and what's really important. It was one of the reasons why last monsoon season, at least here in Tucson, didn't, didn't produce uh, as much rainfall as it otherwise could have because those dynamics um, just weren't there. And so let me, let, me, let me try to explain this. So basically, the... Uh, a good setup is where you have the ability for near surface air to be buoyant and to move up to higher levels in the atmosphere. And basically what you want is a favorable gradient in, in the atmosphere to do that. And so there's, there's two levers that you can pull. 
you can have it really warm at the surface and really cold as you go up. And so you get a steep temperature gradient. What you don't want is an, uh, a relatively similar or, n or not steep, the opposite of steep um, gradient. So uh, temperatures are, are not as cool um, or, or, or are warmer at, at, at upper levels. So that's one way to do it. The other way is to increase the surface uh, moisture. And so you, more moisture at the surface uh, with the temperature profile being the same is gonna create more dynamics. Uh, and so as Mike was saying, there's those two things are at, at, at play. And so if you have um, sort of a, a temperature profile that isn't as favorable, you need more moisture. And you, if you have a really favorable temperature profile, a vertical temperature profile, you need less moisture. And if you had both like a, a really favorable temperature vertical profile and a lot of moisture, you get a, you get a day that is, is, is ready to explode. Yeah, no, nicely done. Yeah. And I think that that that's, I think a nice, it kind of boils it down. I mean, there's the other interesting thing about like, if you study um, thermodynamics for like the Great Plains, where everything is flat, you have this like really good understanding of the temperature gradients and where, you know, CAPE is, convective available potential energy, what the mechanisms will be to, to maybe lift up a, a parcel from the surface and liberate that CAPE because it's going to Clouds going to reach condensation. It's going to release all that extra energy. It's going to race up because it's got a good temperature profile. The Southwest is like this mess of all this topography and mountain ranges have different thermodynamic profiles than the valleys. And so that's why like the good, the high resolution modeling that um, Mike Luthold and Will Holmgren do is become so valuable because you can see these really strong spatial gradients from the middle of Tucson to just five miles away to the top of the Catalinas and see how they're going to have completely different days just based on one sticking up in the atmosphere and one being down in the valley and how the valley can just not see anything while the terrain force convection takes off. And that even becomes part of the bigger story in, you know, Mexico with the elevated terrain and the access to the moisture become such a focal point that they have fairly reliable monsoon seasons. We're at kind of the northern periphery of that and need to have those different levers pull in just the right way, like you said, Zach. In summary, monsoons late, but have faith. It doesn't lock us in quite yet to a bad monsoon uh, or a below average monsoon. And that's particularly important for me, Mike, because... Good transition. <laughs> because I was very bullish, if you will, on our monsoon, monsoon fantasy. Uh, let's finish up here by, by, by talking about the monsoon and so our, the monsoon fantasy game. So just as a recap, we're playing this game where, you know, we're Mike and I, and we've invited people online as well through our uh, listserv to play it with us. So uh, we're picking the categories for each month that we think the rainfall will fall in for each of the five cities of Tucson, Phoenix, Flagstaff, Albuquerque, and El, and El Paso. And so we sent out an email. Uh, we've gotten a total of 36 people who are playing along. And so I'm, I'm right now, and we'll, we'll post this online, but I'm looking at a, a heat map that shows what their guesses are. So, so just to recap, Mike, out of all 30 with Mike, there's 37. With me and Ben, there's 39 total. So out of the 39 total, 
Mike was the only person who guessed below average for all cities. Mike, what gives? I told you, man, I, I was worried. I've got some, uh, some trauma from last summer. I may not shake off. I don't have a 2017 to hold on to like you do. And the outlooks were not good. The, you know, the six to 10 day, I, I am my, I'm a wish caster by, by birth, but this is, it's just feeling, I'm feeling a little pessimistic right now. Okay. So when we do the average uh, across all of the guesses, it's actually kind of remarkable for Tucson. The average decile was 40 to 50%. For Phoenix, it was 40 to 50%. And for Flagstaff, it was 40 to 50%. Climatology, I love yeah. it. Now get this, for Albuquerque, New Mexico, it was 50 to 60% for both of those. So there is range, you know, and Phoenix in particular had a lot of range. A couple people thought that the precipitation would be below the 10 percentile. Um, some of them thought it would, uh, three of them thought it would fall in the 10 to 20 percentile. Some of them actually thought it would be to the 80, 90 percentile. So Phoenix, out of all of the stations, had the most range. But it's remarkable that it's all kind of around climatology. So everybody's a climatologist at heart. I think that's true. True in all aspects of life, actually. Now, I'll also say this, and I think this is really interesting. So Albuquerque and El Paso were, um, slight, were of higher, higher predictions, not predictions, estimates, than the three Arizona cities. And the majority of the respondents were, were, were likely from Arizona, because that's, we know that most people, most of our audience is from, from Arizona. So I think that's a safe, safe bet. Because we don't talk about New Mexico enough. <laughs> but, but this is crazy. So it's like, if that's true, like one of the implications here is that we're a little bit more pessimistic about where we live and, and more optimistic about where other people live. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, so you were the only one that was below average on all of them. And there was two that were fully bearish or fully bullish on above average uh, of, the, of the 39. So for the most part, people were, they were sort of mimicking the variability that we see quite a bit uh, during the monsoon season. So we have a very educated uh, readership or listenership, if you will. Okay, so Mike, you picked 40 to 50% in Tucson. I picked 60 to 70% in Tucson. That's looking not very uh, likely. And Ben picked 20 to 30%, which is, which is looking a little bit better. So I think, yeah, Ben, Ben may have nailed Tucson. I mean, we, again, 2017 as a rally cry, you know, we could have five inches by the end of the month. So I'm wondering, uh, we got Ben on the line here and he did a lot of, uh, he's behind the scenes looking at this data, slicing it up because it's just so fun to play with. Uh, you showed us a plot uh, about looking at the distribution of this data. Now, recognizing that we don't have a lot of uh, data points, so we're sort of filling in holes a little bit. Um, but the distribution of these data points looked very similar to a distribution of the climatological record of, of the cities. Like it, it had the same shape and, and humps, even like the, the slight outliers. 
Yeah, no, that's, I think that's the, maybe one of the most interesting things that came out of it is any given guesser is kind of, you know, some random points within that. But once we aggregated all the guesses, it started to look a lot like the distribution of all of the different years. And so what that says to me is that take, you know, this crowdsourcing of a weather forecast, it starts to look pretty close to what those distributions look like. And it, we'll, we'll see how it actually plays out because obviously it has to actually rain, but uh, we're on really, our way to make we're on our way to making a community forecast here. Yeah, well, and the, the one thing is, is what we don't see a lot of guesses is in the extreme outliers because those don't happen very often, but they do happen. So the the guess distributions are a little compressed into those middle tercile or the middle deciles. We don't see a lot of guesses in the extreme deciles, which you know is to be expected. But didn't we just make another equal chances forecast? <laughs> um, yes. So did the community. <laughs> The community also made an equal chances forecast. Um, okay, so that's awesome. So we have points associated with these. And so we'll tally up the points per month and per season. So in any given month, if you hit all five correct, you get 50 points. So your maximum amount of points over the season is 150. And so we're playing this game through time. So we hope that those who play July will also play August and September, and we'll be able to talk about uh, the winning scores at the end, as well as the winning scores for each month, which we'll go over when we come back in, 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 in August. Uh, and we'll, we'll, have, uh, we'll have the final numbers for July based on our expectations. Uh, and we'll also tell everybody what our estimates and what other people's estimates are for, for August. So be on the lookout for emails, maybe even coming out with this pod, then we can remind people, but we'll also send it out as we get closer to, to August. And I would just make a note that if you do want your, your, your score to be tallied through time, we asked in, in the questionnaire for a game name, um, which could be your, your real name or just your pseudonym. And just make sure that you use that same name because that's the way that we're able to aggregate the monthly scores together. So yeah, so I'm, I'm like really excited about this because I think this is a way of, of A, engaging with the, the, the community and, and, and trying to, to, to guess what the monsoon will be like, but also there's some interesting science questions here too, just about how people are thinking about the monsoon that uh, we'll be able to unpack on this, uh, on this podcast. So thanks everybody for taking the time uh, with that. Um, so yeah, Mike, uh, any, any, any parting shots? No, I think you said it earlier is no need to panic yet. No need to panic yet. That's coming from the man, the only person who, who, who put below average for all five cities. Oh yeah, I did do that. Didn't I? <laughs> ben, any, any parting shots? No, I just hope it rains soon. Oh, me too, man. <laughs> me too. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back uh, mid early to mid-August. And uh, happy monsoon. We also, in addition to sending out questions about what, what people would pick in terms of the, the, the precipitation for different cities, we also asked a few other questions. And, Mike, we got trolled quite a bit. So I, I think there was a sarcastic comment about uh, not mentioning um, beards, uh, which I just did. So I was trying to stay away from that. Uh, but I do have to comment once again, Mike, because uh, it, it's looking good.